Father, we come to you this morning so thankful that we could be here today. Thankful, Lord, that we could sit at your feet. We think about the account of Mary and Martha. and Lord, the reality is that so often we are like Martha's. We are busy and doing the things that we think need to be done when we really need to be abiding in your presence and just being still before you. And so we thank you for this time on this day to sit at your feet. And we pray that as you teach us, Jesus, that we could just be still. Lord, that your spirit would work in our hearts to apply the words that that you speak to our hearts. God, we pray these things because we desire to know you and to love you, but also to glorify you. It is in Jesus' name that we pray these things. Amen. Brian Chappell, who used to be the president of Covenant Theological Seminary, tells the story of his battle with mold. I don't know if you've ever wrestled with mold around your house or not, but he says that no matter what he did or what chemicals he used to apply, he couldn't get rid of the wood-destroying mold from, from growing. And so he decided that he was going to really just knock this out one day. And so he took a, a power washer and he power washed every inch of his deck to get rid of the mold. And then he went to the hardware store to get a chemical sealant to put on it. And so he's talking to the clerk who's somewhat of an expert, I guess, on mold. I don't know. But uh, he told him, he said, I want a sealant that will get rid of this mold and it'll keep it gone. And so the clerk asked him, he says, have you prepared your deck? To which uh, Dr. Chappell proudly replied, he said, yes, I've power washed it. And the clerk looked at him and he said, you're kidding, right? And he said, no. And he said, don't you know that when you power wash mold, you drive the spores deep into the wood where they can regenerate? And he goes, oh, I didn't know that. Well, then the clerk goes on and he says, now, this is what you have to do. He says, you have to put uh, chemicals on the wood to kill the mold and, and apply it. And a strong enough concentration to kill the mold, but not too so strong as to damage the wood. And leave it on long enough to kill the mold, but not so long that you bleach the wood. And remember also to let the chemical killer dry before you apply the sealant so that it will bond properly to the wood. But don't let the chemical killer dry too long or the mold spores that haven't been fully killed will start all over again. And to make sure that you get a sealant with some color stain in it so the UV damage from the sun is blocked. But don't get a stain that's too dark or it will block the sun that keep, helps keep the mold in check. Well, as he was going on, Dr. Chapel's eyes, I think, just sort of glazed over, probably a lot like yours might this morning as you, as you hear all that. And, and Dr. Chapel said, there is one thing that I knew for certain, the mold was going to grow. <laughs> he said, I, I, I couldn't do everything that I needed to do to stop it. And he said, even if I did the right, according to my understanding, he goes, I had no assurance that my understanding of the instructions was entirely correct. And then he went on and he likened killing mold uh, a lot to what it's like to live the Christian life. And he said, we can do everything right as best we understand. And still we know that there's no guarantee that we can do all that God requires of us. He says, our weakness of understanding and our will, the complications of life, and even the forces beyond our control prevent us from keeping God's will perfectly. So he says, so what confidence do we have 
that God will continue lovingly and securing us if we can't do everything that he requires of us. And that's where the Apostle Paul and his words speak to us this morning because Paul points us away from our accomplishments in Ephesians 1 to God's sovereign, gracious, faithful, sure plan for his people. But God not only originated the plan in uh, electing the people to himself and predestining them, but he also oversees the execution of that plan and sending his son to redeem us as well. And he is working in history and in our circumstances, as it said in our text today, according to the counsel of his will. He is carrying out that plan. As a matter of fact, he says in verse 11 that he works all things according to the counsel of his will. So God elects us, Jesus redeems us, that we might receive, as we'll see this morning, an inheritance in Jesus Christ. And I want to talk of that inheritance and how it gives us confidence in the Lord as we understand it more completely. So I want us to look, first of all, at verse 11. First, Paul speaks of the inheritance of God. He said, in him, that is, in Christ, we have obtained an inheritance. Now, I want you to notice that that word in him is repeated over and over and over and over in verses 3 through 14. That it is in Christ that we receive these blessings. And it is in Christ that is the grounds of our inheritance. And we talked about that last week as we talked about how the Son of God came to redeem us. So I won't go over that again, but we have that inheritance because of Christ. But I want us to look at that, that word inheritance. It really means to, to choose by lot. You remember they would cast lots in, in the Bible to determine things. And this inheritance, that word means chosen by lot. And we'll come back to that in a minute. But it's interesting to see the way that the ESV uh, translates this. And actually many other translations in, interpret this verse, this word inheritance, to be something that the believer receives or something that they obtain. You know, it's a lot like a relative who dies and, and they leave an inheritance to their family members who are still alive, right? They're heirs of that inheritance. And so they receive that. But there are other uh, Bible translations and commentators, actually, uh, such as the uh, ASV, uh, that translate this slightly different way. It said, they, the ASV says, in whom also we were made an inheritance, or we were made, uh, uh, excuse me, a heritage or, or inheritance. And in that case, the inheritance is not something that we get, but it's something, it's who we are. And as believers, we are God's inheritance. So, which is it? Well, it's sort of difficult to tell, you know, what, what to understand what Paul is, is saying here. He's using sort of a, a passive verb, so it can be translated to say that we have been made an inheritance. Now, does that mean that we've been made an inheritance in the sense that we've been made an inheritance and it's going to be given to us, or that we've actually been made into an inheritance? It could actually be translated either way. So we need to look at the context, right? We look at the context. And what does it tell us? Well, verse 14, Paul speaks of the Holy Spirit as a guarantee of our inheritance, which is sort of an argument that it's something that we obtain. It's something that we will receive. But then you look at verse 13, and it says that we are marked with a seal by the Holy Spirit, which speaks of God marking us as his own possession. 
which would argue that uh, we have become an, an inheritance as God's people. So how do we handle that? Well, it seems that the best way to handle what Paul is saying here is to consider both perspectives. That maybe what he was really seeking to do was to help us to see that it's actually both of these things at the same time. Uh, first of all, that Christians receive God's inheritance. According to God's plan, Christians are heirs of God, much like in the Old Testament. We read that language a lot. And when the Israelites entered into the promised land, all the tribes and the Pharisees, the tribes and the families uh, received their allotted portion of the land on which to live. And together, they inherited the land as a blessing and each had their own portion and it was distributed by lot. That sort of goes back to that idea of being chosen by lot. And, and much like the, the blessings that the Israelites experienced in the promised land as they entered into this land as described as flowing with milk and honey, uh, likewise as Christians, we have a place in the eternal provision of heaven. Amen? Amen? Amen. It's going to be a glorious place. But in heaven, you know, sin is completely gone. Uh, it, it'll be a wonderful place. And oftentimes, you know, when people talk about heaven, and I hear this more and more, uh, even amongst Christians, it, it somewhat saddens me because I think our perspective can be a little skewed here. But we'll talk about heaven as being a place where I get to see, you know, Aunt Sally or Uncle Bob or or maybe the, the, the child that I miscarried, whatever it might be, is we're looking forward to seeing people. And there is an aspect of heaven in which that is true. But the reason why heaven is so glorious is because God is there. And we get to spend eternity with our Lord and our Savior. And we get to be with Him. And so, you know, heaven is, is that blessing because of the presence of God. It's a lot like the Israelites in the Old Testament. You know, sort of the, the central focus of the Israelite community was the tabernacle or the temple. I mean, even when the Israelites were traveling through the wilderness, uh, they would set up camp. And God told them specifically how to set up the camp and which tribe needed to be where and why that needed to be the case, how they would come into camp, how they left camp and how they would set it up. And what was in the center? It was the tabernacle. It was the temple. So no matter where you were in the camp, when you walked out, you saw the temple or the tabernacle, which was representative of the presence of God amongst his people. And that's what heaven will be like for us. And so God is our inheritance. You know, that's what's so glorious about the promise of heaven is that he is our God and we will abide with him. So we possess God you know, by uh, knowing him in an ever-increasing way. And we will do that for all eternity. Can you imagine that? You know, we, we, I, I used the illustration a couple weeks ago about how even couples that have been married 50, 60 years, you know, will talk about how they're still discovering things about each other. You know, even though they've been living together that long as a married couple, they still are learning. But how much more will that be with a, an infinite God? And so we look forward to that day. Uh, so we learn to to love God and trust and to praise him. But there's also a sense in which Christians are God's inheritance. Um, we are God's inheritance. Deuteronomy 32, 9 says, But the Lord's portion is his people. Jacob is his allotted heritage. And so we see these two ideas that are brought together where, where he is our God 
And we are his people. We see that in Hebrews chapter 8 and verse 10. We see that throughout the Old Testament too, where God would say, I will be your God and you will be my people. And that's what I think Paul is getting at as he's talking about that inheritance. That God's plan that he is currently working out is that we are to know God and to be known by him. To love God and to be loved by him. He didn't uh, save us to simply hold on until Christ comes. You know, this is something where even uh, in, on earth, God gives us fellowship and communion with him right now. Now, it's just like a little sample. It's just like a little taste. I mean, I don't know if you ever go to Sam's Club. Maybe Costco's has this too. I don't know. But Sam's Club, if you go there, they'll give you these little tiny samples, right? And uh, we used to joke because we'd say around mealtime we'd go and take our kids and we can feed them lunch just about because they had all these little samples. But, you know, you get a little sample of what's in this massive display case behind them. You know, they have packages of all this food and they give you just a little taste. And that's what our fellowship with God is like here on earth. It's very real. It is fellowship with him, but we look forward to when we will see him face to face. Now, I want you to notice something as you look at the text this morning. Notice that when he talks, when Paul talks about the inheritance, he states it here in the past tense. But I don't know anybody in this room who has gone to heaven yet. Heaven is a future thing. It's something that's going to happen in the future. So why would Paul state it? As if it is a past tense. And that is because the moment that you invite Jesus Christ into your life, the inheritance is yours. It is yours. You see, you got to understand that in, uh, whenever the Greeks wanted to say something about the future that was so sure and so certain that, you know, there's just no question about it. It's almost like it's already happened. They would put it in the past tense just to show you that it is that certain. And that's why Paul tells us this, that, that this promise of the inheritance that we will have is a sure thing that's coming. So that's the inheritance that we see. But then in verses 13 and 14, we also see the guarantee of our inheritance. God not only redeems his sons in Christ, but we see in verse 13 that he also marks us with the seal to show that we belong to him. Look at verse 13. Him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. Now, in Paul's day, a prominent person would choose an emblem uh, as their official seal, and that was their seal. And, and oftentimes it would be on a ring, or it might be on a little stamp that they carried on a chain or, or, you know, or a, a rope or something around their neck. And, and they would use that little emblem to press into hot seal uh, to leave an imprint on their emblem on an object that they wanted to identify that belonged to them or, or that came from them. You know, you read uh, in many accounts in, in the Bible, especially in the Old Testament, where a king would make a proclamation. He would say something and then they would send it out to all the people in their land. But before it went out, the seal would or the, the king would put his seal or his emblem on that document. So if somebody said, is this really from the king? They could show the, the, the document that it came from them. But it was also a sense of something that showed that you belong to that person as well. 
And that's the same work that Paul says of, of God identifying all who belong to him by sealing, by the sealing ministry of the Holy Spirit. God has given us his spirit to show that we belong to him. So as you, as you come and, and you might even hear the words that I'm saying and you say, well, preacher, how do I know what you're saying is true? You know, maybe maybe I'll believe in Jesus. You know, maybe I won't. I don't know. But what's the guarantee that what you're saying is true? How do I know if, you know, if, if my life is all reoriented, you know, to this whole Christian thing that I won't one day wake up and find out it's all a lie? Well, how do we know? Because God says that he gives the spirit as his guarantee. Look at verse 14. We were not only sealed. Okay, we were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. It says in verse 13, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. Now, that word guarantee means a down payment. It's, it's the initial money you put down to guarantee the completion of a transaction. So my son and my daughter-in-law recently moved out of state. And when they were looking at houses in this other state, they looked all around, and when they found the house that they liked, they're like, this is it. This is the house we want. And so they pulled out their checkbook, and they wrote that check for a certain amount, and they gave it to the title company. And what they were saying, in essence, is, we're serious about this house. Okay, we want to buy this house, and we're serious. And we're, we're showing you our, our seriousness and the guarantee that we're going to buy this house and by giving you this money. And if we don't follow through, you can keep this money. And... and much the same way, when we become a Christian, God did a wonderful thing. He gave us the Holy Spirit. As a matter of fact, in Romans 8 and 9, we read that if a person doesn't have the Spirit of God, they're, they're not a Christian. So if you're a Christian, you, you have the Holy Spirit in you. And that's, uh, that's why you see that change in a person's life that takes place. And that's why there's something new in your life that the Spirit of God is there. And, and he is there not only to empower you, to fill you for service, to equip you for ministry, not only to uh, give you the gifts to use in the church, but he's there as a guarantee of your inheritance. God is saying that this inheritance that I promise to you is so true, I'm going to give you the Holy Spirit. And as you see the work of the Holy Spirit in a person's life and you see how he can take someone who is dead in their sins and make them alive, that will be a sign to you, a guarantee that heaven is real. That the inheritance that I give to you, that I will be your God and you will be my people, is real. He's the earnest money in essence. And so you might ask yourself, but... You know, how can I tell if the Spirit of God lives in me? Well, Paul doesn't deal with that, but I do want to cover that just briefly because I think that's a question that people could have. You know, what does the work of the Holy Spirit look like in the heart of a person? And uh, a, a pastor, a preacher by the name of Jonathan Edwards, an early American uh, church history, he wrote a book entitled Distinguishing Marks of a Work of the Spirit of God. Because the day and the time he lived in, there was a lot of revivalism, a lot of external people saying, yes, I'm following God. But you looked at their life, it didn't look so much like that. So he's like, well, how do you know if the Spirit of God is truly working in a person's life? And this is what he says. And uh, I'm just going to really more mention it briefly than, than anything, just for those that might have questions. First of all, when a person, when the Holy Spirit uh, dwells in a person, they elevate and they exalt Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is what their life is about. False spirituality is not really interested in Jesus 
but on focused on self. Now, the, the difficulty comes in is this, that sometimes we can put such a layer of religiosity upon self that it sort of looks like a heart that's been changed, but really not so much so. And if you really look at a person's heart and if you see that really the focus of their heart is themselves, then you can say the work of the Holy Spirit has not been done here. But a true work of the Spirit exalts Jesus Christ and leads us to faith and to love for him. A, a true believer will bear witness about Jesus. He will glorify Jesus and you'll see that focus in their life. Now let me just give this caveat to this. It's not like we see these things perfectly in our life. Sanctification is a growth. It's a process that, that happens. And so, you know, you might look at your life and say, oh, I don't see that to the degree that I would like to see that or think. It's not that we're perfect in these things, but the Spirit of God is moving us in that direction to exalt and to elevate Jesus Christ. But also to repent of sin as well. You know, merely being a, a moral or a good person doesn't prove that the Spirit is at work in us. Uh, but it's as we see ourselves uh, hating the sin that we see and battling against that that we see the work of the Spirit in us. A true conversion also increases our interest in the Word of God, uh, a desire to know the Bible and, and to put the Scriptures into practice is a mark of the work of the Holy Spirit in our hearts. Uh, fourthly, also having a sound grasp of true doctrine and a zeal to defend its against error. Um, the Holy Spirit causes Christians to love sound teaching, rejecting worldly and secular humanistic tenets. And then finally, you see the mark of love, a love for God and a love for people. So these are just some things that, that you see in the work of a believer. And I'm sorry I don't have time to take you to the scriptures and show you all the places where these come from. But just if you're having that question, uh, that's what it looks like uh, in the work of the Holy Spirit in a person's life. And then I want us to see, uh, finally in verse 14, Paul mentions the goal of our inheritance. God wants us to be blessed. You know, he loves us so much and he wants the best for us. But really the goal of our inheritance is to the praise of his glory, as he says at the end of verse uh, 14. That we would glorify and that we would praise God. We are not Christians for our own glory. We live and we breathe and we move that God might be glorified. We see that great passage in the, uh, the end of Romans chapter 11 where Paul breaks out into praise uh, using those words. And so we need to be careful. You know, the day that we start to seek to be somebody, the day that we seek to promote ourselves, to set ourselves up as an authority for other people to see how important we are and to acknowledge that, that we have significance, we are at that point competing with the glory of God. We are seeking to exalt ourselves above God. But God has saved us. He has redeemed us. He has given us an inheritance that we might glorify God. Because our God will share his glory with no one. We are his servants and grateful recipients of his grace. Brothers and sisters, I want, I want you to see that the Holy Spirit has already enabled us as his children to taste the sweetness of God in the gospel of our salvation. And is giving us a foretaste of the glory that's going to happen uh, if you are a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, your life has already been turned upside down. 
It's already changed. Your priorities are different. The way you look at things are very different. The conversations that you have with your neighbors and people at work sometimes sound strange to them because they just don't understand this perspective. And that is because the Spirit of God is so working in your heart. You see, these precious truths um, give us meaning and purpose and courage to our lives. But you know what? It may be that you may be here today and you may be struggling. You may have, th- have things going on in your life that uh, just seem so hard. And, and you might even ask, you know, does Paul really understand the real challenges that we face? I mean, I understand he talks about how this ought to encourage us. And he claimed that, that everything will work out for God's glory and our good. But does Paul live in the real world? Well, let me tell you where Paul was writing this letter from. He was writing it from a prison in Rome. You see, he, he understood. He was in prison awaiting the trial for his life to see if he would be put to death or not. Our God understands the suffering and the trials we go through. He suffered so that we might have eternal life. You see, Paul knows the real world and, and because he believes the gospel, he believes that even his suffering is the part of God's purpose of spreading the message of his faithfulness past and present until all of God's precious people are gathered into glory in his name. Because our, our weakness before the world outside of us and, the, and our sin caused by the world inside of us are so evident, we need the blessed assurance that our lives are not fruitless and that what we fail to achieve is not disqualifying of God's love. Ultimately, our confidence has to turn away from anything that we would offer to God, anything that we would do, anything that we would say, and instead towards the faithfulness of our God that is confirmed by His Spirit's work in us. And so we ought to not look so much at what we do as much as what it is that God is doing in us. Without these assurances, the things that we must face until Christ comes, um, until He comes again, would be unbearable. But with the assurance that His purposes are secure and that we are in that plan, we can face whatever He calls us to endure and be secure even when our weaknesses are apparent. So we don't have to try to be stronger. We just have to trust in the Lord. You know, Dr. Chapel, if I might give another illustration from his life, he talked about some friends that he had, and they, they have a son by the name of Robbie, and he was born with multiple mental and physical illnesses, and, and Robbie was uh, uh, graduating from high school, which he was excited about, but his parents were a little concerned over because a lot of the government support that they got only was good until he graduated from high school, and then after that point in time, the family wasn't sure how they were going to, to care for them. And so Dr. Chapel talks about how Robbie had been on his mind for, for several days. And he said he was at church and he said the pastor of his church was pronouncing Sunday's benediction, you know, the promise of God to give his blessing to his covenant people. And, and as the pastor finished the benediction, there was this uh, slurred voice in the back of the church that joined in in saying with the pastor to our God 
is the power and the authority now and forever. Amen. You see, it was, it was Robbie from his wheelchair was testifying to the power and the sovereignty of his God, past, present, and future. How could he believe such a thing with what he was going through and his parents were going through? His, his suffering and their anguish had been so great. But there's, a, there's little on this earth that would confirm the truths that we read in Ephesians chapter 1. Only faith affirms that Robbie's hope is not in vain. But such faith rises above the earth and sees all things from God's perspective. There he shows himself to be the God of all power who was able to conform all things to his purpose. There he promises that every valley shall be lifted, every injustice will be made right, every tear will be wiped away, hearts will be healed, bodies will be made whole. And all that now happens will lead us and others to an eternity of these blessings with our Savior. The weakest of vessels and the vilest of sinners are part of God's eternal plan, as are all who believe in him. Brothers and sisters, uh, the universe of your soul is already different. And this is the work of the Holy Spirit. He is the deposit of God of the full redemption that is had given to assure you that what you face is not without purpose, and what you most cherish is not at jeopardy. It, neither is it in your hands. Instead, it is in His wonderful hands. And even when you can't do everything right, and when things seem to be wrong, you are all right with God because He has chose you and is working out everything in conformity with the purpose of His will to the praise of His glory. Amen? You know, this week, uh, this little thing popped up on Facebook, and I thought, wow, thanks, Lord. That's very appropriate for my sermon on Sunday. It was somebody talking about Ephesians 1, 3 through 14. You know, I've told you that that's just one sentence in the Greek, right? And this person made the comment. They said, you know, it only takes 30 seconds to read those verses, but it takes a lifetime to unpack and to grasp what it is that God has done for his people. Let us meditate much upon what God has done for us and let it lead us to worship and to praise him. Would you bow your heads with me for a time of silence and meditation on the word of God this morning? Our Father, we, we thank you so much as we sit before you today to, to be reminded that, that our worth is not because of anything that I have done, nothing that my hands have done, but it comes from you. Lord, why, why would you love such sinners? We cannot understand. We do praise and thank you, O God, for the wonderful and amazing grace that you have shown to us, that you have given to your people and your church. And we pray, O oh God, that such amazing grace would 
fill our minds. And Lord, that we would rest in who you are. God, that it would give us assurance as we face the struggles each and every day to know that you are a God that loves us and you care. And I pray that you would help us, O Lord, to cast our burdens upon you and to trust in you and to hold on to the promises that you have given to know that they are sure. We thank you, O Lord, and we pray these things in your name, Father and Son and Holy Spirit. Amen.